Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and this is the last episode before the start of the festival on Thursday, the 24th of September. Remember, all of our online events are completely free. Just head over onto our website, wigtownbookfestival.com, to sign up for events and enjoy a lovely little slice of Wigtown from the comfort of your smartphone or computer. And if you are a fan of the podcasts, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting app. We are quite literally available everywhere. That is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. So you have no excuse. (laughs) Just head over, type in Wigtown Book Festival and click subscribe or follow. We have some special podcasts in store for the festival and we don't want you to miss them. This week has a distinctive Wigtown theme as we feature Astrid Jekyll and Ken Elgunas, a married couple who met at the festival a few years ago. They've both been involved for some time and they are absolutely central to proceedings, as you will hear in our conversation. Astrid Jekyll, artist extraordinaire whose If These Walls Could Talk celebrated the 20th anniversary of the Booktown, was winner of the 2019 AOI World Illustration Awards. We caught up with her to talk about the retrospective of her work that is taking place at this year's festival. Take us back, Astrid Jekyll, to your first ever Wigtown, if you could. So that would have been seven years ago when I responded to an open call for artist residency for Wigtown Book Festival, and it was Spring Fling at the time too. And um, so I made a proposal and I, I met with Adrian and suggested that I would cover the county buildings, which is this beautiful, big historic building that overlooks the town square of Wigtown and has many, many wonderful windows. And I would cover all these windows in a backlit paper cut installation. They like the idea and and I went ahead and did exactly that yeah what drew you to the opera I mean you're you're obviously a working artist so it's a it's an opportunity to, for work obviously but I mean what was it was there a quality to Wigtown or to the place or the festival that that drew you in to begin with um I was still rather new to Scotland so only sort of two years before I moved over from Germany I did not actually know that much about the geography of Scotland. I mean, I knew there was the Highlands and, and I was in Edinburgh and I kind of knew the kind of obvious bits. But there was that whole Dumfries and Galloway was actually quite a mystery to me. What I would find there, it was exciting. I mean, when you enter, when you come to a new country, when you move somewhere new, everything is, is exciting. But I mean, I still think Wigtown is exciting. That never wore off, obviously. But I didn't know much about the festival at all. And it was just an opportunity listed amongst other opportunities. And I just loved the idea that I could interact with the community and I really didn't know what I would find to be honest. Lovely so tell us about how you then embarked on this um, the very beautiful um, Windows of Wigtown project Astrid how did you then get into you know because that community that's such a very special band of people set the scene for us. So after I I had my interview and they said yes go ahead and do it I travelled to Wigtown I think even the first time I I actually travelled using all the buses and trains that get you there and I remember I arrived in, in the afternoon and I stood on the town square and there was just not a soul. There was nothing. And I had proposed that I'm going to do this amazing community art project where I speak to everyone. And there was just like nobody. And I could see a few 
curtains twitching. I was like, oh, is there, are these the people I'm going to talk to? And like, I was, I was a bit worried. I was like, oh God, what have I promised? But I mean, to my delight, I found that everyone was just lovely. And I did this tour of Wigtown where I asked someone that I spoke to, to kind of refer me to the next person and hand, basically hand me through Wigtown so I could speak to whoever they thought I should speak to. And that took me to people's living rooms and kitchens. And I had many cups of tea and I sat in the, the old smithy with just wonderful locals and just the openness and the kindness and generosity it was just wonderful so the project really ran very smoothly from there um, despite my first impression <laughs> and so tell us then like, what was your brief to the to the people in the community that you were meeting what, what what I guess you would have had a sense of what you were trying to elicit from them but how did you winkle their stories out it was just like pure curiosity when you come into a town like that it's a beautiful setting as I say, it feels mysterious. It's full of bookshops. There's really nothing else um, at the time, at least. And I'm just like, who are these people? And like, how do they how do they think of living in this small town that has 10 bookshops? And as they told me later, it was one of the quotes, you can't buy a pair of knickers, but you can buy like a ton of books. So what do the people make of all this? And like, really, it was just from my, what drove me was pure curiosity and like just being very nosy. And that definitely helps as an artist, just always sticking your nose into everything. And yeah, so I was provided with lots of different quotes. And the brief was, I think, as long as what I did was somehow help to connect, you know, the local community with the visitors, like a community engagement and get people to talk to one another. And that was the plan. And it did really work out because... The quotes, they really ranged from everything from, you know, I can't buy a pair of knickers and like some people just ranting about the festival because, I mean, that was part of it. You know, not everybody's going to be super happy with everything. And then some were just saying how they, you know, got used to it and really started enjoying going to things after a few years, actually, that they had to warm up to it. And some were just talking about one another, like, you know, this guy is just... He's just wonderfully generous and he does everyone's shopping. And all these quotes were sort of cut out of paper and put into the windows and backlit. So at night it would become quite dramatic. And you would see people standing there and you'd see the locals that were very proud because they knew what was going on and they knew who was spoken about. And then just locals that were very curious about this community, of course, and could find out a bit about it by, you know, just having those chats and yeah, and that's very satisfying to see when you do a project like that. You want to see that happening. You want to let go and just see the people taking over, really. I can remember actually standing on the just, I think that was the first time that you and I met, it will have been, but just looking at those windows and, and how, how they just caught everyone's attention. But I hadn't quite fathomed that, of course, the locals would know who, what, where. So there was a kind of insider, outsider kind of vibe going oh, on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely delightful. So that was your first Wigtown, Astrid, but you ha- you're you're no stranger. You're a bit of a, I would say, sort of Wigtown royalty at this stage, no, with a with a retrospective coming up at this year's festival. Tell us about that. What's what to expect in this brave COVID buffeted age? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all um uh, digital, I suppose. Um so it's kind of safe. I'm 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 safely away from a safe distance. This is all happening. It really is just kindly I've been offered you know a space to show all the work I'd I'd done um over the past seven years as you want and there's there's a few projects there um so I think it was just two years after the windows I actually ended up designing 
a number of peep boards. So, you know, these wooden boards where you put your head through and somebody takes a photo of you. And it's usually kind of saucy kind of stuff that you find at the beach towns, kind of tourist attraction. Um, so we did some of those and every bookshop got their own board. I believe there's wonderful photos of you as part of that, actually. I think there might be somewhere <laughs> out there. <laughs> and every, every bookshop was in Wicktown was paired up with an international book town of which there are many throughout the world and and then a, a sort of literary figure from that country was chosen and illustrated so you could become that figure as you popped your head through the board that was a few years back and then of course the the latest one possibly the most nerve-wracking one of all <laughs> was um, the very uh, ambitious uh, idea that was actually born in the bookshop um, over a glass of wine, looking at the window going, what if I just wallpapered this town? And everyone had a laugh and I had a laugh. And then I went back, went home and said, no, actually, I think I want to do it. I think I want to. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's what happened. Um, so that was for Wigtown's 20th anniversary as a book town and that was two years ago the idea was you know it worked with windows worked with the pavement um let's see what we can do with these walls so on the town square I approached a number of people whose buildings I found particularly interesting and I asked them would they mind me wallpapering the outside of their house (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and um and I, I just remember thinking as I asked those questions, like, of course they're not gonna say yes. I mean, you know, people are protective of their property and obviously they are. And we're also not exactly in Berlin or somewhere where you see street art. And a lot of these people just actually couldn't picture what I was talking about. But to my surprise, they said yes. And I and I remember just saying, really? Really? Like, you know, really can't actually believe that you just said. But everyone just put a lot of trust in me. And, and I think that's what I like about Wigtown. People are just willing to have a go at something and so the next step was that I collected stories about their house and what the house had seen basically and and then those stories were um, turned into repeating surface patterns so like typical wallpapers that you usually find inside of the house but sort of turned outside so that people could walk through the town square look at the patterns and think oh you know what's and then there was a map to take you around and explain what was what so we had frogs and we had, you know, there was a house where the basement was very damp and there used to be frogs and mushrooms growing in there and all sorts. So that made a wonderful pattern. Um, we had um, famous Scad, who's um, who runs a wonderful sweet shop. His generosity and all his community action um, awarded him an MBE. But also the, the shop used to be a toy shop when his parents had it. And now it's a sweet shop. So that one got a kind of merry-go-round with horses. I wrongly thought that an MBE is a knighthood, not not really understanding the system. So Scad was turned into a knight who's going around on a merry-go-round. And so it's all a lot of fun, really. <laughs> and so that's going to be featured in this exhibition too, a few pictures of that. Oh, it's such a striking project as well. But I I would have thought not without its complications in terms of mm, wallpapering no. old Wigtown buildings. Say more about that, please. It must have just been like the mind boggles a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, so I'd never actually wallpapered anything interior to start with. Um, I've just never done that. Um, so this was quite a learning curve. And when you're wallpapering houses from the outside, 
you know, the walls, interior walls are usually quite smooth, so it's all straightforward. But then suddenly you're facing kind of brickwork, a pebble dash, sort of badly painted houses where the paint is actually coming off everything. And oh, not only that, you're facing sort of window frames and drain pipes. And, you know, you have to work your way all around that. And it's very sticky and you're on a sort of lift, scissor lift that's kind of swaying in the wind a bit. The rain, the weather, lots and lots. and I mean, endless challenges, really. The height. I mean, I didn't quite like the height, but I did get used to it. So I had good helpers, luckily. Um, I had one helper that I'd met a year before, who's uh, Ken, who's now my husband. (laughs) So we met in Wigtown the year before, and then we were back there on the scissor lift. And, you know, the poor guy, little did he know what he was going in for when we first met, that he would be dragged back to Wigtown to do all this. And we had Storm Ali. I don't know if you remember that one. And we had just finished everything and then Storm Alley came around and took some papers down and I came back and put them up again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's always some storm at Wigtown. Usually it coincides with the market, the day the market's up, (laughs) just to add a bit of drama. Um, I mean, yeah, so it's going to be so lovely to see all these projects together again, Astrid, as well. But what what of this current moment for you? What's it like in in this weird digital space that we're now? kind of inhabiting I'm actually someone who who does kind of almost I've got my fingers in all pots so I do actually do a good bit of digital work too I've um, taken to doing short animations I wouldn't go as far as calling myself an animator but you know they're, they're moving and it's happening on screen so and also you know I am the mother of an, of an almost 11 month old baby so to be honest I sometimes think maybe for me this is the best time to go through a pandemic because I felt you know when you have a young child there's just something about being a little bit isolated from the world anyhow and things changing. And I just felt like if there's anything good about this at all, and, and I know there is really not, but it's that kind of everyone seemed to join in with me in this kind of strange not going to work, joining in on my maternity leave almost. I mean, I'm back to work now, so everything is um, changing again. But um, perhaps it was the time in my life where this would have affected me the least almost. But yeah, I do feel with everyone who's had it much, much harder. Yeah. Of the of this period then, what do you think you might, I don't know whether that's in terms of the, your practice or, or your, more a mindset or a philosophy, what do you think you'll take with you after this very odd months that we've seen? And for you, very, you know, new with the baby and everything, what, what will you bring with you? Well, it's, it's hard to kind of separate the two because I've had, you know, it's really coincided with maternity leave and, and me just having to live my life very differently than what I usually would have done and also during those difficult months we were in the woods for a long time so it was kind of we were living this wonderful other life that we knew was was limited that we'd be returning from it's almost hard for me to say how you know what I would have done had I not had the child and not been away how my life would have been different everything has changed so quickly in the last year you know and I do think that as a creative partly self-employed person I've always had to be quite flexible and I've always had to sort of adjust to things and work remotely and work on my own and you know take work with me elsewhere so in a way maybe we're partly set up for this kind of situation Um, but I have been seeing just looking around I've seen a lot of people are just willing to take new risks or have really sort of been thinking about whether what they're doing in their daily lives is what they really want to do or whether they want to change something And luckily, I'm quite happy with what I'm doing anyway. There's not been 
much of that going on over here but but yeah I do understand that that is happening no huge epiphanies you're not going to chuck it all in and <laughs> you know no maybe yeah. no no not really radical so, yeah. um how was America for you I'm inferring that that was probably quite eye-opening it was very very interesting it was um an America that I knew existed um but hadn't been in touch with um we were we ended up in in the sort of deep south you know living a lifestyle that I was that I didn't know before it was very wild in the woods there were so many animals I, I drew a lot of them from memory after I'd seen them we were also living in a community that just kind of introduced me to things that I never would have been in touch with otherwise so I was taught to shoot weapons and you know one of them is sort of semi-automatic you know this is not my way of life and I don't agree with the use of weapons at all but it was just like an interesting thing to do to just get an insight into the cultures that exist down there so it was you know there was a lot of kindness and generosity around us but there was also just a way of life that just I, I didn't have anything to do with so far so it just added to the kind of exoticness of this trip and you know along with sort of all that's happening politically as well it just it was quite an intensive trip if you want with a lot of in- interesting insights Thank you so much to Astrid. You can find out all about that wonderful retrospective on our website, wigtownbookfestival.com. Astrid mentioned being in the States for lockdown with her husband, Ken Ilgunas. Ken first came to Wigtown to present his fabulous coming-of-age book, Walden on Wheels, and he's returned many times since to discuss his passion for land rights and the freedom to roam. Normally, just around about this time of year, we would, of course, be decamping from our respective places to be in actual Wigtown? I, I really wish I could be in Wigtown. It's, it's just kind of a special place in Scotland. I mean, that's the first time I ever came to the UK was to do my first reading at the Wigtown Book Festival. And that gave me a reason to visit my family, all my cousins and uncles. They live in Motherwell. And the second time I did a reading was in 2017. And then I met my now wife there. So uh, Wigtown's special to me. That's special. That's a lot of things happen. How, can I ask, how do you know how Wigtown got wind of you in your first book? Walton on Wheels. How, how did that invitation reach you? Uh, it was barely them getting wind of me. Robert Twigger, who I'm sure many listeners know, is a, is a regular at the festival. We kind of traded emails and books uh, back and forth, and he just suggested, "Yeah, well, you should try to come on over." So I, I came back. I came over in 2013, and I loved it. And then uh, in 2017, when I had my second book come out, then I invited myself over, and it's been that way ever since. <laughs> But at least through the powers of technology, we can we can be connected here. And I'm aware, of course, that an invitation reached you, I guess, around May time to write indeed a piece for the Wigtown Book Festival website, a letter from the heartland. Ken, could you tell us a little bit about that piece and about the circumstances you found yourselves in? So as you might tell from my accent, I'm American, but I'm, I'm actually living in Scotland these days. I live in Dunbar in East Lothian, but I got stuck in America during lockdown. I was doing a couple um, visits to colleges and high schools, just talking about my books. And that's just when when everything went down and airports were closing. So we were stuck in North Carolina, just right in the middle of all this. And it just so happened that I had one of my best friends living in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina. And I'd lived there in the past. And I knew that he was what some might call a doomer or 
a prepper, someone who kind of prepares for end days. And I thought, I actually know the best spot possible to sit this thing out. So tell us a bit. So David is is the friend you mentioned, and he's he's a, got a starring role in your piece. Can you tell us a little bit more about David and his, his sort of lifestyle, this doomer position? Uh, yeah, he's just a super smart guy. He's kind of a, an amateur scholar. He knows a little bit about everything. Um, he used to be in publishing for the San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner, and he he was the one who kind of had to make sure that the papers were printed the next day. So he always had to worry about problems and contingencies and stuff like that. So that just kind of transcended the rest of his life where he's just always thinking about problems and what can kind of come next or what can go wrong. And he's taken it to what some might call an extreme. And he's, you know, he doesn't quite have a, a bunker or anything like that, but he does have food stored. He lives in this really quiet part of North Carolina. He has guns, as as many Americans do. And it's just in this really quiet spot surrounded by the North Carolina forest. And it's just so peaceful and tranquil. And we just wound up there with our little daughter and just kind of marooned ourselves there. It sounds like you couldn't have picked a better spot for that kind of um, experience. But I did want to ask you, because your books are often about, I, I believe the books actually, can I check, they were written in that place in Stokes County. Is that right? All three of your books? All three, yeah. It, it does seem like both in terms of David's sort of position, but also your own background as a as an adventurer, as, 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 a, as a Walden, a modern day Walden. Those two things come together to, to make for quite good preparation. I just wonder if you could say a bit more about the adventuring spirit and how or if it helped in the current moment we find ourselves in? I think it was more luck than anything else and just kind of taking advantage of it. Like, we just had a ball. Astrid learned how to shoot an AR-15 and and drive an ATV, you know, a four-wheeler. And I was growing a garden and building a carport, just kind of embracing the life there. And, And David, he would call himself a liberal Doomer. You know, most doomers or preppers kind of lean to the right, but we do had some new neighbors who very well might identify as, as more right wing. But the thing was, they were just absolutely wonderful and fabulous people, and always helping out. And they were just always kind of putting an elbow to our side to come and shoot at the gun range and stuff like that. So we just made the most of it. You know, when in Rome or when when in Stokes County. I think yeah, your piece it was interesting in terms of Ron, who's the other figure, the neighbor. Give me hope that there is hope that people from very opposing viewpoints can get along. Can you say a little bit more about that? I think at some point in the piece you talk about keeping the conversation local, not aggravating each other. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, Stokes County, it's, you know, it's in the American South. 76% of Stokes County voters voted for President Trump. It's very conservative. It's very religious. And you can kind of reach a point of despair when you know, you, you can't really interact with the side. There's so many people on the left and so many people on the right, and they're just not mixing. We're all in our kind of own bubbles. And we found a way to mix. And the way to do it was just to never talk about politics. And we all had enough social intelligence to realize that. So what we did was we just kept it local. We talked about the weather. We talked about the black bear that was wandering through Ron's yard. We talked about the deer and growing gardens. And we got along really well. I mean, for me, it's not a 100% real friendship unless you can really talk about, you know, what's in the bottom of your heart or what's dwelling on your mind. So at some point, you feel like you're kind of hiding yourself, concealing yourself. You just don't kind of feel natural around people. 
on one end, you know, we got along really well, but on the other, you're just always kind of wearing a mask. Yeah. Well, literally at the moment, wearing a mask as well, <laughs> depending. I guess you didn't have to. That was one thing about being so remote. I, I, I imagine a lot of the stuff that we've been, you know, super used to talk about gardening and, and so on. I mean, the supermarket crushes and the masks and the and the rules probably didn't apply in the same way where you were then. No, when you're surrounded by, you know, thousands of acres of woodland, you know, you're free to go and wander. You're not stuck in your little flat or your little home like that. So we had a great deal of of freedom that way, but they took it pretty seriously as well. And, you know, when you walk into a, a North Carolina supermarket, you know, I'd say four out of five people were wearing masks. And at the time, all of the state and local parks were shut down and all the national parks were shut down. And a, a big problem with America is all our no trespassing and private property signs. So there were some days where we were, uh, you just kind of had nowhere to go. Whereas here in Scotland, of course, you kind of have the, the right to roam and a lot more freedom to do so. And th- so that's one of the benefits of Scotland that we weren't able to take advantage of over in the States. And that's very much the topic of your third book, Ken, This Land is Our Land. Do you want to I, I say a little bit about that? That's the last book that you presented, because you presented all three, of course, at Wigtown. But do you want to just say a little bit about, about that book and the maybe the weather in which it was written? That's right. You know, on one of my trips to do a reading at Wigtown, I decided to go on a trip across Scotland. I ended up walking from uh, the town of Aviemore to the town of Fort William, and that took me over some very hilly country. And the whole time I thought I was trespassing. So at any time I saw someone, I was hiding behind a tree or a bush, not realizing that the Scottish people have what I referred to earlier as the right to roam, which is guaranteed by law. And once I discovered what it was and I stopped having to conceal myself, I just really embraced it. I just felt like such a a free person in Scotland, be able to pick any point on a horizon and and go and just, you know, enjoy nature. So for my third book, This Land is Our Land, I'm trying to import this Scottish idea, this wonderful Scottish liberty to the United States, which, you know, is covered with walls and fences and private property and no trespassing signs and, and yes, uh, lots of guns. So it's kind of an implausible idea when you look at American culture and some of our traditions. But I think of that book as kind of like a hundred year book. You know, maybe we're not ready for it in 2020. We're certainly not ready for it this year. We got other things to deal with, but maybe we'll be ready in 2120. And I just kind of hope my book lays the the moral and historical framework for it. I guess the reception for a book like that is really different than if presented to an American audience than a Scottish one. Could you could you tell us more? Is that is that have you encountered American audiences and readers with the book? And, and what has the reaction been? Not many people have read it, unfortunately. Uh, it, it, it wasn't quite my best seller. Some books, they're published not in their right time 2019 2020 this is a good time for a book on gender or race or you know all these different intersectionalities maybe a book about the right to Rome will be the right time in 28 years I don't know so it just didn't land at the right time but having conversations with people about it I've never met any serious argument that defeats my argument when you look at the Scottish law and how it's the right to roam responsibly. It doesn't allow for litter. It doesn't allow for going into people's backyards or swimming pools or anything like that. Um, It's hard for an American to argue against it. I mean, I think you're absolutely right about books sometimes taking a, having a longer game 
in play. And I, I think that something like Walden on Wheels, in which you explore hitchhiking and freedom and nature and the outdoors and so on, you know, they, they have such a currency in the present moment. Can you say a little bit about Walden on Wheels, Ken? Because it's such a fascinating story of, you know, your journey, really, as a student and a graduate student. I've been told that you can only write one coming of age book in your life. And that's my coming of age book. Uh, it was my first book. It published in 2013. Uh, I published this this hit article for salon.com. It was called I Live in a Van Down by Duke University. And it was just it just took off. And this literary agent contacted me and he says, do you want to turn this into a book? And I thought, you know, sure. But like living in a van is actually not that adventurous. You know, you wake up, you go to the gym, you go to the library, you come home, you sleep. That's it. You can't write a whole book about about that. So I thought about expanding that idea and taking it back into my life and describing why I would end up secretly living in my vehicle for two years on a college campus. And I realized this story just needed to be told. So I graduated with a bunch of student debt, as almost all American college students do. I couldn't get a job in the field I wanted, which was journalism. So I took off to Alaska and I worked odd jobs up in the Arctic and I hitchhiked around and I lured the value of a dollar. And I met a whole bunch of interesting people up in Alaska living in their vehicle living subsistence lifestyle. So it was kind of uh, a coming of age journey. And it would culminate with me paying off my student debt and then deciding to live in my van while in grad school to never go back into debt again. And back in the uh, early 2010s, this was the ideal time for a story like that when you had the Great Recession, you had a bunch of student debtors, you had a whole bunch of people who couldn't afford their mortgages, you had a whole bunch of people living outside of their means. So then was the right time to tell a story like that. How much does that way of living still influence your practices, Ken, I guess, in, in the world? I mean, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a radical thing to do, but obviously was of enormous benefit. But how, is, is that still the case for you? Are you still careful? You know, did it influence you in that way? Yeah, well, I should say I've, I've kind of upgraded to a, a proper roof over my head these days. <laughs> I'm not living in a, a, a tin vehicle anymore. But, you know, when you do something like that for two years, it's a journey of its own. And on every journey, you learn a little bit about life, a little bit about yourself. And what I learned was I don't need much. I didn't really, for those two years, didn't really need immediate access to plumbing or electricity. I didn't need a fancy vehicle. I didn't need a home. I was quite content. That was kind of like an intellectual renaissance for me because I didn't have anything to do but study and you know go to school and stuff like that so I know for the rest of my life even if I never live in a van and I actually hope I don't <laughs> live in a van again I know for the rest of my life that I'm going to be happy with the bare necessities you, you mentioned that everything's a journey that leads to somewhere you know what, what of this period for you what was it inspiring to be back in Stokes County how might this period inform what comes next? It's interesting that you asked that. And when I got the invitation to come on a podcast, I was just kind of unsure about it because I don't really feel like a writer right now. You know, I, I had this wonderful seven-year streak of three continuous book deals. One immediately followed the other. And I felt like an author. And ever since then, which was about, you know, a little over three years ago, I've just kind of been in this, I don't want to say funk, but in this kind of hiatus 
period. And at times I feel kind of creatively lost, maybe not creatively lost because I do have a lot of interesting ideas, but my life has changed in a couple ways. Like I'm a husband now, I'm a father. So that adventure travel idea I was thinking about for years, I had to be put to the side. I was thinking of doing another uh, a how-to book on student debt and then the virus happened and there just might be this new normal that makes a book like that irrelevant. So it's just kind of a lot of starts and stops and frustrations. So, but, but I'm happy to talk about that because being a writer isn't just about coming on a podcast and excitedly telling your story about a new book. Being a writer is about those hiatuses. It's about those frustrations. It's about waiting for inspiration to come back or it's, it's just waiting for the time to be able to put in the hours. That's where I am right now. I'm really glad you brought that up, Ken, because I think you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a huge amount of energy put on the front list and the, the new thing that's out. But actually, a lot of the work happens elsewhere. You know, a lot of the work isn't being at the desk. It's researching, it's reading other things, thinking about what might come next. I mean, what have you been reading during this period? What have you been reading? Yeah, I'm always, I'm actually kind of binging movies lately. I find that easier when you're kind of in between baby care duties and stuff like that. I am, I'm kind of wrestling with an idea right now. I'm kind of thinking of it as kind of like a non-fiction high fidelity, kind of like, um, I hate to use the word love life sort of book. Male writers, especially, they just kind of don't go there. And I wish they would because they would kind of provide a voice and a guide for, you know, just everyone going through these things. You, you go to school, but you're never taught how to date and love and start a family or have a one night stand or, or, or all of these things. So I'm wrestling with this idea right now. And I'm, I'm sure some listeners thinking, you know, who the hell cares? Who the hell wants to listen to your, your love life? But uh, I've learned from other books, other memoirs. Uh, Robert Twigger's Walking the North Line is a perfect example. Sometimes what the book is about is almost irrelevant. What's relevant is the voice of the writer, the personality of the writer, his or her insights or wisdom or humor, it makes you turn the page. And if you can write with an engaging enough voice, I promise you, you'll zip through my love life in no time. You want to be won over by that voice. It seems to me in your books, you're almost writing for a younger you. You're writing for a young you who might have wanted to know how to eradicate student debt by living on a, you know, in a van. That's spot on. When you're writing a book, you can't write it for everybody. You can't write it to be so politically correct that it's not going to offend anybody. You got to find just one person to write it for. So I, I decided to write it in the voice of my first book, for instance, Walden on Wheels, the memoir. I wrote it in the style of my emails to my best friend, Josh. I still email him. It's, I've, I've had like a 20 year email correspondence and it's a very kind of unfiltered, uncensored, honest writing style. Halfway through that book, I realized I wasn't writing it for Josh. I was actually writing it for my 17 year old self. I thought my 17 year old self needed a book like this. He needed to hear the things that I was going to write about. So looking at these past 10 years or so of my life, I think I can glean enough wisdom and put it down on paper. And if I could go back in time, in a time traveling vessel and give it to younger Ken, he would find great value in it, but I can't do that. So maybe some other young men and young women can. 
Many thanks to Ken. If you want to read a bit more about his brilliant lockdown piece, you can find it on the website. Thank you so much to Astrid. Thanks, of course, again to Ken. And thank you to you for tuning in with us these past number of months and hopefully uh, for tuning in again next time. Don't forget, as of Thursday, that is the 24th of September, um, we will be in your ears much more frequently as part of the festival. So please do subscribe. Do find us on your favourite podcasting app. We would hate for you to miss us. You would hate for you to miss us. Um, We look forward to joining you again more frequently soon. But thank you for now for joining in. Always a pleasure. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye.